Good morning. Good morning to those six of you who said good morning. <laughs> hey, hey, everybody else. Oh, there we go. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them up to Luke chapter 1? We, uh, you see the stage. We have, we have officially made it to Christmas. So congratulations, everybody. We're here. It's my favorite time of year. I'm working hard to make it my kid's favorite time of year. It's not hard to make Christmas somebody's favorite time of year, though, especially when you're five years old, you know. Um, and it's hard, isn't it, to remind a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, actually, what this season is about when the world is telling them a different story. Uh, there's a whole bunch going on at Christmas, and a lot of it has to do with them getting things that they want. Uh, but Christmas is about us getting the thing that we needed, the exact opposite of what we wanted. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. We're going we're gonna to continue here looking at this small Christmas series that we're doing, the Christmas Gospel. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Last week we were in Isaiah, and we saw this expectation of this coming servant who would come and bring justice to the nations. And this morning we're going to see the announcement. And I thought I would start by asking, what do, you, what do you expect of a king when his coming arrival is announced? Have you ever thought about that? I was just looking up just some numbers and some of the some of the stuff that goes on in our world when a, when a king shows up somewhere. You know, you expect the arrival to be a, a pretty big deal. We don't really have kings so much in our world anymore. We do have kings, but most are prime ministers or presidents. And so I looked up just some numbers on what it takes for the inauguration of a president. Have you ever... Have you ever looked into something like this? It's amazing. Um, now, obviously, you know, we had, so far, we were 700 years prior to Luke chapter 1 last week. So we've had 700 years to prepare for this arrival. And it's not the first uh, announcement of his coming. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning. So a president has a couple of months because the election happens in November and the inauguration happens in January. So we can spare them a little, I guess. But uh, President Obama's first inauguration cost around $170 million. It's a lot of money. $45 million of that was spent on the dinner alone. Now, I'm not just picking on Obama. I think Trump's was more expensive than that. I just couldn't find his numbers. So there's no partisanship here. Um, but you've got to think of all the planning, the prep, the logistics, the staff. You've got to do background checks on every single person that's standing there with a, with a name tag on. I think when Janelle went through her background check for the sheriff's department, it cost them around 2000 to $4,000 just, just for the background check. That's what your tax dollars are going to. Here's something I never thought about. I don't know if this is important to you or not. 5,000 porta-potties at the inauguration. That's the details they go into for these kinds of things. Uh, a presidential motorcade 
consists of around 40 to 50 vehicles. I looked up, there were numbers on this. Trump's trip to the UK recently included over 1,000 staff. Of course, an airplane, fuel, a helicopter. You think about 1,000 people traveling to the other side of the world, you've got to house them. You've got to feed them. You also have to pay them. Now, I'm not, I'm not making fun of any of all this. I mean, we, we live in a dangerous world. Most of this is somewhat necessary, maybe not completely. You know, gone are the days where a president can simply walk down the middle of the street or go on a hike without a, without a motorcade. But you think about the announcement of these events, the ads... The tickets, the setting up of the events, it may cost millions of dollars. And it's known about globally. A president can't cross a border without everyone in the world knowing that it's going to happen a few months in advance. That's the nature of being an important person, a leader. And we would, we would expect it to be like that. Now, the story we're going to see today, it's, obviously, it's not an unfamiliar one. You've all experienced Christmas before. You know what's going to happen in this story. Uh, But we're going to see the announcement of a coming king who puts all of these other leaders and presidents and kings to shame as far as what is claimed of him. He's a king who will be called, we'll see, son of the most high. His reign will be forever. The extent of his kingdom, that is, from one border to the next, will be forever so here is a king who is god for time and for all places that's the king that we're going to hear announced today and so the question is what what do you expect of the announcement of the coming of this type of king compared with what we just looked at let me read this for us this is luke chapter 1 26 and down through 38 Just listen to this story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled to this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great And will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now that's quite a story. Now we looked at this last week. We knew that this was coming. And it's 2,000 years later and it's Christmas season. We know that it came. Uh, but on history's stage, this, this announcement wasn't unexpected necessarily. You know, Isaiah's prophecy was not the only one. There are hundreds. But I don't like to do this too much because it's a little dangerous. But put yourself in this young girl's shoes for a moment. A young girl. Uh, we don't know her age, but in this time period, you would be engaged probably 14, 15 years old. A virgin engaged to a man not yet married. I think, uh, I think the word unexpected is probably an understatement, right? And so just look at how this plays out here. I want you to see how this starts because there's some interesting ways that Gabriel words some of this stuff that you can't really see in the English here. No, notice, notice the way that Gabriel greets her. Verse 28. I mean, just the scene already. Here's a young girl and an angel appears in front of her. Now, so far in Scripture, whenever that happens, the person almost falls over as if they're dead because they don't know what to do. So that's already happening. But she show, he shows up in verse 28. says, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, that right there is already a lot to take in. The word... The word there in the Greek for greetings, it's not the normal word that you would use to say hello. This isn't the normal way that you would come in and say hello. The word greetings there, it's the same word that Paul would use when he would write his letters and he would say grace and peace from God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like greetings is like coming to someone and saying grace instead of saying hello. Now, our church is named Grace Bible Fellowship. We talk about grace every week. We, 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 we probably lose the surprise and the meaning of grace because we say it so often. But if you're a young girl in the first century here, a virgin, engaged to a man, lowly, not of great stature at all, and an angel of God appears to you and he says, grace. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? A young woman has an angel speaking to her and starts off by telling her that the grace of God is upon her in a unique way. Most of us don't expect to hear that or even necessarily believe it, even though we read it in our Bibles every day. You certainly don't expect to hear that from a messenger from God. And that's wild. Grace, that is favor, unexpected favor of God. Hello. <laughs> and just in case she missed it, look, he goes on and he repeats it here. So it's greetings is the word grace. And then he says, oh, favored one. He uses the word grace again, except he describes her now as the as the recipient of grace. Basically, grace to you. Oh, grace filled one. 
You are a favored one. Again, one who has the grace of God upon you. Oh, and oh, by the way, and just in case you missed those first two words, the Lord Yahweh himself is with you. Hey, that's quite the way to say hello, I think. Right? I don't get hellos like that very often. Especially not from an angel. This, this, the Lord is with you. That's what you read in the Old Testament of kings, King David, the prophets. They're the ones whom the Lord is with. That's what this means, that he is with you in a special and unique way. Remember, right here, this is before Pentecost, okay? We haven't had the Holy Spirit come down and indwell believers in a special way to where we now say the Lord is with me. The Lord was within and amongst his people in an Old Testament context, but to say the Lord is with you in this special, unique, grace-filled way was uncommon. That's what the angel does when he shows up to Mary and says hello. (laughs) And you can see here, because she has no idea what's going on, how she reacts to this. Look at verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. No one expects to be told hello from an angel anyway. You definitely don't expect this type of hello. Especially not as a lowly young woman in the first century. Troubling. What's going on here? What does this mean? What kind of greeting is this? Who am I? Why is this happening? Now, we don't have time, and we're not going to turn over every rock in this passage. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't plan to tell you what every word in this means in the Greek and all that stuff. I wanted to start off right there and break that apart so that you can see the setting and the scene here and what's going on here for Mary as we get to this announcement. She is taken aback. She's gotten this unexpected greeting that you really only see of the great men of old in the Old Testament and on rare occasion. This is, this is, this is where Mary is. If you can, try to, try to just taste this, feel this as we go through the rest of this. Just to understand this moment as this announcement comes. Because so far this is all she's heard. She doesn't even know what the announcement's about yet. Right, and so think about what we just talked about the, what's normally involved with the arrival of the king. The last thing on her mind at this point is that Gabriel is going to tell her, "You are going to give birth to God, your Savior." Right? Uh, most of us, I think, probably don't think we're in any way, shape, or form worthy enough to be the the one who carries the inauguration of a president on our backs. I don't think I'm worthy of that. I don't know if you think you're worthy worthy of that. Especially not Mary. And so he goes on. She's greatly troubled. She's trying to figure out what's going on here. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Because you have found favor with God. He is, he is 
leveling this up with each thing that he says. And again, the word favor there is really the word grace again. And when someone says you found favor with God, because it's said of a few different people in the Old Testament, said of Abraham and, and Elijah, Noah, you found favor with God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are a wonderful person and you've done some wonderful things. And so your, your head sticks out above the rest of the pack. And so God has chosen you for a special task. That's not necessarily what you found favor with God means. It simply means that God in his divine plan has decided to use you for whatever reason. The reason being because he decided to use you in his infinite love and wisdom. Mary, you're a favored one. You have the grace of God upon you. He is with you and you have found favor with God. God has chosen to use her for his own purposes and glory. And by the way, those who have been saved by Christ, these things are true of them as well. Did you know that? That's what happens here in the New Testament is Jesus comes in and does his work and he dies and he's, he's resurrected and, and his people are saved and indwelt with the spirit that what the angel says to Mary is true of us, that we are the grace-filled ones on whom the Lord has laid his favor. That's what's so, what's so surprising about the gospel. What's so amazing about this is that we sit here today should be as dumbstruck, as awestruck, dumbfounded. I was about to mix those two words up. As awestruck and dumbfounded as Mary is here when Gabriel tells her this news. You found favor with God. He has decided to use you for his purposes and for his glory. And so Mary's standing there Okay, well, what's about to happen? And he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, there's a couple things there that are interesting and probably a little bit confusing for Mary. And they are because she asks the question. But we need to stop right there before we get to verse 32. Because the last time in the Bible that we saw a person with the name Jesus, something pretty amazing happened. Now, you may not realize this, but the Greek word Jesus is the same as the Hebrew word Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua. And the name means salvation. So here's an angel coming to Mary, telling her all of this stuff. You are going to give birth to a child and you are going to name him salvation. <laughs> what? Right, the last time that we saw this name was back here after the Pentateuch. Right? You're, you're, you're Jewish and you're reading the Pentateuch and the next book you get to is the book of Joshua or Jesus in Greek. Salvation. And what does he do? What, is, what, is, what does Joshua do in the history of Israel for the people of God? He, he brings people into the promised land. He vanquishes the enemies of God and he sets up his people in the promised land that they'd been trying to get to for 430 years. 
That's what the name Joshua, what the name Jesus implies. You know, I've read this before and missed that part and gone on to, wow, that he'll be great and be called the son of the most high is a big deal. It is, but it's a big deal before he even gets to that. Mary's sitting there thinking, I'm going to give birth to the next Joshua. Where are these people right now? Where are the Jews in history? They're, they're sitting in Israel, having come out of exile, most of them gone. I think it was about 50,000 people that came out of, out of the exile, the Babylonian exile that when, when Cyrus allowed them to come and, and rebuild the temple. Most of them are gone. The reason that the Jews started being called the Jews were because the Judeans, the, the tribe of Judah, were the only ones who came out of exile. Everyone else is gone. And so here they are sitting here. They've, they've come back to, a, to an understanding of, of the law of Moses, but in a, in a messed up sort of way where they had, they had switched the law and, and salvation and started to see that the law is what we must do to be saved, not that we're saved and then God gives us the law and shows us how to live as a saved people. They'd flip those two things over. So they're sitting there under some type of a, a spiritual darkness, but they're also under the hand of Rome. They're under the oppression of Rome. They're allowed to, to, to practice their worship and, and to do what needs to do, but they pay, they pay their, their taxes to Rome. And as long as they don't have any uprisings, Rome won't crush them. That's the deal. And they had wicked men in place to enforce that. The, the Herods were not a good group of people. They were thought of as traitors that were basically Jewish Romans, which is what they were. And so the people are here sitting, knowing about the Isaiah prophecies, knowing about the Davidic prophecies, knowing that God's going to come and send one who would bring them again into the promised land. They were sitting there in the promised land, but not in the way that God had promised Abraham that it would be. And the last person with the name Jesus or Joshua was the one who accomplished that task. And so here's Mary with an angel standing in front of her, telling her, oh, favored one who's found favor in the eyes of God, you're going to give birth to his son and his name's going to be salvation. I imagine she had a little trouble breathing right there. And he says, he will be great, verse 32. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Break this down real quick for a second. Look at this. He will be great. I could not find, maybe you can, but I could not find a single instance of a person in the Old Testament being referred to as great beside Yahweh. People like Goliath were called great in that they were big in stature, but no one was called great except for Yahweh in the Old Testament, referring to his character, his being, his nature. 
And the word, the word means superior in importance. I couldn't find it anywhere. If you can find it this week, I, extra credit or something, I guess, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So he's already comparing this one who's going to be born, who's called salvation, with God himself. And if that's not clear enough, he goes on to say that he'll be called son of the most high. Most high is the title for God. It's pretty obvious what it means. It means he is the most high. There is no one above him. He is the highest. He's the supreme one in the universe. And this Jesus, who is to be born to Mary, would be son of the most high. And what exactly does that mean? We can't think of we can't think of son in the way that we would normally think of son. We think of son, we think of 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 reproduction or of the continuing of a family line. That's that's not what's implied with the word son. Because Deuteronomy six, we know that God is one. He's God alone, there is no other. So for someone or something to be called a son, it means that they have to have the same nature as the one who fathered them. Does that make sense? We'll break it down like this. this maybe this will be helpful or maybe it'll creep you out. I don't know. Uh, I have three kids, and, and for each of them, I've, I've been there for the birth. I don't know if you've been there for a birth before, but we'll leave that at that. But as they're standing there and there's a baby being born, you expect at least one thing. This will be a human, right? Now, the first one, you're not sure what that means necessarily, but you're at least expecting this will be human. Why? Well, because I'm human. It's of the same nature as me, what we're going to see here. A book, a table, a dog, a tree, those are of different nature than me. Human is the same nature as me. So for Jesus to be called the son of the most high, at the very least tells us that he is of the same nature as the most high. Which means he's God, right? So here's what Mary's just been told. She's going to give birth to a human, a fully human boy, and God. Truly and fully God. Truly and fully human. That's what she's just been told. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a theology class and studied the hypostatic union and looked at the Christological way that this works. But I can guarantee you that there's some Bible college students and some seminary students that can't quite explain it too well. Here's Mary, a lowly servant girl, engaged a virgin probably doesn't know a whole lot is just been told that you were going to give birth to the God man. What do you do with this information? Right? You think, well, that's, that's gotta be enough. He keeps going. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Because he's a descendant of the king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
the one bearing the name salvation, who is both fully God and fully man, is going to be born to a virgin on whom rests the grace of God, and he's going to be king forever. But there's one more thing. He says, of his kingdom there will be no end. It's possible here that he's reiterating what he means by reigning over the house of Jacob forever. I think of his kingdom be no end. He's speaking differently when he's talking about end, talking about borders. I could be wrong, but I think what he's saying is his kingdom is going to go on forever in time. And his kingdom has no end in vastness or expansiveness or, or distance. But if you could travel from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe, if the universe actually has sides, you are only going to see places where this son of yours, Mary, is going to be king for the rest of eternity. Whoa. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? But I want you to hear Mary's response. This is what's important for us right here. I want you to hear Mary's response. She doesn't question how God can also be a man. She doesn't question Gabriel's theology of what the promised land is or the political implications of a perpetual kingdom. She asks a very practical question. Look what she says. This isn't a doubting question, by the way. This is genuine curiosity. Gabriel, can you tell me how this is going to work? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Which means she expected this to be fulfilled instantly. She wasn't expecting this to take some great amount of time. She's expecting, I am going to be with child right now. How is this going to be? This is not the response of her cousin. Luke writes this in in parallel with the story that came before about John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Interesting story. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both old age. Zechariah is the high priest that year, and he's told, I am going to give you a child. Almost exact wording, Abraham and Sarah are told. And the high priest, who should have known his Bible pretty well, you would think, laughs. Not as a, oh my goodness, that's amazing type of laugh, but a That's what he laughs. His response was of doubt. And so what Luke is doing here is he's comparing Zechariah's response with Mary's response. There's no doubt in Mary. She just says, how is this going to work? She's wondering how it's going to be. And this is what Gabriel explains to her. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he tells the story about her cousin. She had no idea about this. Your, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. 
she was unable to have children. And then he goes on to give us the point of the story right here. For nothing will be impossible with God. The God who can give barren women children, who gave Abraham Isaac, who has given us all of this in his word, is also able to make you, Mary, a virgin, give birth to God your Savior. Now, the king came, of course. Everything that Gabriel said is true. He's ruling from the throne of David right now. There is no end to his kingdom. There's no place in this world where his rule does not reach. There are no interruptions to his authority. No threats of overthrow. The Senate never blocks his votes. He's defeated his enemy. Death tried to end his reign. And he rose victorious. That's who this God is, this man is, this Messiah, this servant that we saw in Isaiah. He's called great, the son of the most high, who sits on the throne of his father David and reigns over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom has no end. That's who he is. He's the one who sits on the throne and is calling all men and women to himself. I think the question for us in this story is, what is your response to him? Because we have these two responses compared. Zechariah and Mary's responses. What's your response to this announcement that the king has come? What's your response to the announcement that the king is sitting on the throne and he's ruling and reigning. You know, or maybe, maybe that's not the issue. Maybe you struggle here with verse 37. You know, a lot of us can be good theologians in that we know things to be true. But how does it How do we actually live it and believe it, act upon it? Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that to be true? Christmas time is, it's my favorite time of year, but I know for many people it's the most difficult time of year. I've talked with plenty of people over the past couple of weeks This is their first Christmas, their first holiday season after losing somebody. There's nothing more difficult for them right now than seeing the lights and the Christmas trees. When when you are faced with trials, when you are walking through life and the unexpected happens to you, do you believe, believer, That you are still one on whom the grace of God rests because he has done the work of saving you. And that he is the one with whom nothing will be impossible. Do you believe that to be true? 
As you are, as you are walking through life and the difficulties come, are, are your responses to them like Zechariah's or are they like Mary's? That's a hard question to ask ourselves, isn't it? It's easy, I think, to ask these questions when we are outside of the trials, you know? Well, I think I would respond this way. But the Bible tells us that it's what's in our heart that comes out of us when the trials and the pressures of life squeeze us. And I think it's clear in this text that what was in Mary's heart was exactly what Gabriel declared of her, that she had the grace of God upon her. What's going to come out of you when the pressures of life come? Is it going to be that the grace of God rests upon you? That he's done his saving work in you? That he is working out his salvation in you? And that he is giving you these trials to build, he says, character, endurance, and hope? Or are you more like Zechariah? I find myself acting like Zechariah more than I want to. You find that to be true? I know these things to be true, and yet I hear them, and I don't believe them in the way that I should. I think this Christmas season, this Christmas gospel that we're hearing and, and believing and rejoicing in and celebrating needs to be one where we come back to this word and we are convinced by God himself that with him nothing is impossible and that he will do his saving work. And that because God has given us this son, this God who is man, this one who sits on the throne of David as a man, fully God and fully human, the Messiah, the servant, that because he's done this work and has saved us and has given us new hearts and has indwelt us and is working the sin out of us by his sanctification, that he will do this work to continue to make us like this God. Isn't that an amazing work? That he would take us and that he would make us like Christ himself? What would drive him to do something like that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? It's pretty clear when I look in the mirror in the morning that it was not me that made that drove God to do this. It wasn't because I'm a great person or because I look amazing or because I've accomplished amazing things. It's because God has set his grace upon us and has called us his favored ones and has chosen to display his glory in us. And so we can sit back like Mary and say, hey, look, I don't know why this is going on. That's okay to say. I don't know why this is going on. I don't know how this is going to be. But I believe it to be true. And would you help me rest in this grace? Amen. Let's have the ushers come forward. And we're going to take this Lord's Supper. And I'm so thankful for our catechism question today. And 
what Ryan taught us here. We come, we come to this table as favored ones in Christ who are invited to come and share this meal together and to celebrate what Christ has done. But that's what we're doing. We're celebrating what Christ has done, not what we've done. We're celebrating this incarnation of Christ where he came as human, setting aside his glory, Philippians 2 tells us, and going to the cross and bearing our shame and guilt so that we could stand here in Christ, worshiping him. We didn't add anything to this. Is there anything in this that we add? Is, is, is it us taking these elements that somehow provides us, or is, is, is somehow us acting and, and, and working our salvation so that we can be justified? Did you ever get in that mindset? Where you think, you know, I've, been a, I've just been a bad person this week. I need to go to church next Sunday so that I can work that off. You get in that mindset? You know what? I haven't been good this week. I should read my Bible. Not because it's what I need to do, but because, you know, that'll maybe, that'll maybe help remind God that he made the right choice when he chose me. Or, you know what, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here. Perhaps I need to do this just so that I'm doing the things that I need to do to show God that I'm just a good person doing the things I need to do. That's not what this is for. This is us as sinners before God, saved by grace, worshiping him for what he's done and celebrating it until he comes back. We're proclaiming his death. And so take it in that light. We're not adding thing to his, anything to his work. He has accomplished the work himself. We're celebrating. So I'm going to pray. And I want you to take this time to celebrate what Christ has done. Celebrate who he is and what he has done and thank him for it. That's what this is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about you, who you are who we are, what we deserve, and what you gave us. Father, we, we, we thank you for, for these examples of your servants throughout Scripture. Mary, who was able to respond the way she did because your grace rested upon her. Father, there are many of us in the room who wonder if we would be able to respond the way that we should. And the answer, apart from your grace, is no. And so, Father, we pray that you would work in us a special grace rooted in our salvation given to us at the cross. We know that you bring us through the things in our lives so that we may become more like you. Father, we want to respond with grace and with faith when we are squeezed. 
Father, would you do that work in us? May we be a people who love your word and love this gospel. We're so thankful that as a culture, we are pointed to this story every year. What a grace that you would allow us even that. Father, help us to to be mindful of that as we go through this month. Be with us now as we take communion together, Father. Would you be glorified in it? Those who have unrepentant sin, would you help them repent? Father, those who have difficulties thanking you and worshiping you, Father, would you help them? Father, be glorified now as we do this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.